This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. A thread of thought that's kind of run through the lessons that we've had so far is the idea of the authority of God and defining right and wrong and our accountability to that authority. And tonight, our study intends to bring that thought process down to an individualized basis. I want to really individualize and personalize our understanding of God's authority the principles he sets down of right and wrong and the fact that he holds us accountable. Your sin, your guilt. I don't want you to think about mine. I've got sin, I've got guilt. Praise God through Christ. It's, it's been dealt with and is being reckoned with. And if you're a faithful child of God tonight, you, you can say the same thing. Okay? But I don't want you to think about mine. I don't want you to think about your neighbors to the left or right, front or back. I want you to think about your sin, your guilt. And I can assure you that as we talk about these things and read these scriptures together tonight, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. I'm not going to be thinking about you. I'm going to be thinking about me. Because that's what we need to do when we come before God. And we have come before God tonight in our worship, and we come before God when we open his holy book and study it together. We're listening to him. The scriptures speak of the ministry of teaching the word in the book of 1 Peter as coming to the oracle of God. So we've come before the oracle of God when we open his book and together we break this that we sometimes call the bread of life. And we need to individualize it so it doesn't become a thought process where this is about they, them, somebody else, somewhere else. We can't help but do that some. But we want to be certain that we're always disciplined to turn the light of truth on my own heart because God knows I need it and so do you. So let's join together in this disciplined exercise. Considering your sin, your guilt, Psalms 53, verse 2 and 3. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They're all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. It's a bleak picture. And I'll tell you, it hurts. It hurts to read it. And what hurts more is to know that it's true. This is God's survey of the totality of the human race. And as he looks upon us, he doesn't just see that glossy and fine facade that we present to our neighbors and our fellow man. He doesn't just see the feller in the foyer. He sees what's going on on the inside. He knows the real me and the real you right down to our darkest weaknesses and our most dreary moments and our most bitter 
failings and disappointments, the things that prick our conscience and make us weep in our prayers before his throne, and the things that mark us to him as lost in sin. What he describes here in Psalms 53, verse 2 and 3, is how he sees us outside of Christ, apart from Christ. And I want to emphasize that in our study because this is such a dark view of mankind and a sad view of mankind. I want us to remember that this is God is telling us what we look like with his righteous gaze, his righteous examination of us, the righteous inventory he constantly takes of us. This is what we look like apart from Christ. And it's not very good. There are depictions on the screen before you of different kinds of addictions and sins and human tragedies and sorrows that center around people doing wrong things. And when you think of that assemblage of of pictures there, it looks like mankind at its worst, and, and that looks a lot like one of those they, them pictures because I can identify different parts of that and see you know criminal behavior ungodly behavior and I can think well but that's not me well but that's not me well I didn't do that well but that's not me that's really not me but I'm in there somewhere if I'm not there indeed I'm there in word or if I'm not there in word I'm there in thought Tell me you've never been mad enough that you felt like committing a crime. Can you really say that? You know, the scripture says the one that hates his brother is a murderer. Now, really. I see that yellow crime tape up there, and I look at that, and you know what I think? Well, that's not me. I'm not that bad. Well, now, wait a minute. God doesn't just see the outside. He sees the heart. And he knows that moment I may have forgotten about. When I was mad as a wet hen and I felt right and I felt justified and I got mad enough that my anger become hate and if but for a fleeting moment, God saw in my heart hate that put up the yellow crime scene tape. A grim perimeter around the thoughts of the moment. Maybe I'm not there. Maybe you've never had that kind of thought. But if we looked at it long enough and thought about it long enough, we'd all find ourselves and see ourselves because that's how God sees mankind apart from Christ. When we think about your sin, I want to think about the extent of our sinfulness and the misery that it brings. Psalms 107 and 17 Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. This is not to say that God catches us sinning and says, all right, I'm going to make a tragedy, a natural disaster happen to you as a punishment for your sin. This is talking about the natural consequences of sin. And that's something we need to dwell on for a moment in our study. There's a reason that God tells us not to do certain things that he tells us not to do. And there are reasons that he tells us to do things, certain things that he wants us to do. 
The things that God asks us to do are things that would make us be better, feel better, have a more joyful and meaningful life. And the things that he forbids us to do are things that would destroy us. Some more obviously and some more subtly. Some from the outside in, in a corruption of our physical health. and Some of it from the inside out. In the sad devastation that we work upon our hearts. When in stubbornness we rebel against the will of God. And that's the kind of thing he's talking about when he talks about by transgression and iniquity, we afflict ourselves. In Ezra 9 and verse 6, he talks about the shame that comes from sin. Here, the scribe said, oh my God, I am ashamed. And I blush to lift up my face to thee, <coughs> my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head. Our trespass has grown up under the heavens. This is Ezra praying to God and lamenting to God about the sin of God's people. The remnant uh, or the fragment of the nation of Israel that was left after Babylonian captivity and returning from that distant land to reoccupy and rebuild their homeland. And as he contemplated the idolatry that they had practiced, as he contemplated the sin that they had done, as he contemplated the iniquity that they had willfully woven into their lives as a nation, <coughs> he blushed before his righteous God. He said, I can't even look up at you. Some might say, well, we shouldn't feel that way. God, help us if we can't feel that way in contemplation of our sin. I will tell you, you can read in Scripture about some that are not able to blush, and it's not a compliment. What Ezra is experiencing here in the words expressed in his prayer is an expression of the shame that he's long felt. For the sin of God's people. <clears throat> the longer I live, the more I study scriptures, the more I try to help people or be hands through which God helps people is a much more accurate way to say it. The more I'm convinced that some of the most profound damage that sin does is to our psyche, to our heart. We hurt ourselves so much. And one of the manifestations of that hurt is the shame that sin brings. The can't make eye contact shame. In Psalms 40 and verse 12, the psalmist here described that feeling of shame when he said, innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart faileth. He was broken, beat down, and depressed at the contemplation of his sin. Look at how it seemed that it just encircled him. It's the language of a battle wherein the enemy forces have come and fully encircled and engulfed. There's no escape. 
Now that's not a reality before some God that's unforgiving. That's the emotional state of a person dealing with the shame of their sin. That's what they did to their own heart when they sinned. Whatever that sin might have done to hurt the body, here's how it hurt the soul. Like Ezra, I'm not able to look up in Psalms 38 and verse 4 through 8. David here writing what I believe he's writing about the, the embarrassment and the pain he felt with the sin of Bathsheba. You might read that psalm and try to plug it in at a different point in his life, but this is where it, it seems to make sense to me. He said, mine iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of, I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. If you're outside of Christ tonight, your heart better roar to bring your conscience to a point where you know you need Jesus and you need him now. The way David described his state of mind here, some scholars look at that and speculate that in the wake of his sin with Bathsheba, he actually caught some sort of a, a sickness or a disease and was physically ill. I could understand reading that passage and coming to that conclusion. Maybe you read that passage and you come to that conclusion. If you do, I don't blame you. But let me show you what gets my attention. When he brings it down to the capstone and puts icing on the cake, he talks about the quietness of his heart. And I think this disquietness of his heart is everything else that he's describing. If you've read much in the Psalms, you know that the Psalms are well known for very dramatic language. Strong poetic depictions of feelings of, of greatness and feelings of success and spiritual joy and feelings of emotional agony and despair and feelings of guilt in this case. And David is describing the shame and the disquietness of his heart, a heavy burden. As you read back through those words and he talks about being bowed down Greatly in all, I picture a guy that starts out on a journey with a heavy load on his back. And so he stoops over to try to align the frame of his body with the weight that he must bear to keep it from making him buckle and fall to the ground. But with each step, it seems, the pack becomes heavier and heavier. And after a time, the growing heaviness comes to feel as though Somewhere from above, there's a heavy thumb that's just a little bit more with each step pushing down a little greater and a little more weight. And I'm trying to readjust my stance so that it don't buckle. But it's just bringing me down until finally I feel like I'm absolutely broken and falling apart. We cannot carry our own guilt. We cannot carry the legal magnitude of our guilt in heaven's court and we cannot bear 
the emotional pain that it brings to our hearts. It will destroy us. This is a depiction of sin destroying a person from the inside out. It starts out on the soul, but before long, it's wrapped its icy grip around the flesh and the heart, and despair sets in. And the weight that person bears is joined by the sting of slavery's whip. Hear how the scriptures describe sin as slavery in Proverbs 5 and 22. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He depicts a circumstance where a person given over to iniquity or sin is bound with ropes. They're tied to it. They're addicted. They're a slave to it. In John 8 and 34, Jesus explained to his audience there, he answered them, Verily, verily, I say to you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. When a person gives their life over to sin, this is a sinful lifestyle. When they give themselves over to sin, you become a slave to sin. You're under Satan's whip. You are his property. You are his slave. Think of every ugly word in a civic and social sense that we attach to the idea of chattel slavery, wherein a, a human is seen as being owned by another human in all of its ugliness. And that other human you can read about in ancient societies, old pagan cultures, where because it was thought that this human owned this other human and this other human was the property of the first human, that it was fully right and acceptable for the first human to kill the second one because after all, it's just their property, you see. Think of all those kinds of thoughts. And it's in that historical context that Jesus said, folks, you're Satan's slave when you give yourself over to it. 2 Peter 2 and 19 talks about people making sin sales pitch. He said, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought into bondage. What is sin's sales pitch? It's freedom. It's liberty. I get to do what I want. It's my life. I'll live it any way I want. And so those who promote and advocate whatever the sin of the moment might be, with their advocacy and with their words comes the promise that we, you, you get to do what you want. You get to be free. You don't need to live by those rules. Those rules just stifle you. They're holding you back. Don't listen to those people. Don't listen to that God. Don't listen to your parents and on and on. Do what you want to do. It's your life. It's your body. You can do as you like. It's a sales pitch that promises freedom. The word of God says it is a lie because the very salesmen that make the pitch are themselves not even free. 
They might think they are. They might act like they are. They might tell you they are, but he says they're not. Oh, no, I'm free. I get to do what I want. No, you're not because of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought into bondage. When you're overcome by it, you are its slave. Oh, you're not overcome? Well, then quit. Go ahead. And you'll find out in a hurry whether or not you're a slave when you try to quit. See, he shows us what it really is in the sight of God. That's the extent of our sinfulness and all of its ugliness. And here's the extent of our guilt. In Romans 3 and verse 19, he said, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. This is a fascinating passage because, to, to kind of put in paraphrased terms, he's saying, Moses' law spoke to Israel. So there's these other people over here, these Gentile nations, that they weren't under Moses' law. It wasn't for them. But what the law said to those that were under it, the nation of Israel, it still made those other nations guilty, so to speak. Maybe it's more accurate to say it made their guilt obvious. Later on in the Roman letter, he says death reigned from Adam to Moses. So even before Moses' law was given, sin and death were there and were a reality. Just read the story of the flood. God sent that flood because the vast sinfulness of the human race. You know the story. So before the law was even there, mankind was guilty. And once Moses' law was there, given only to Israel, it still showed what was true of all people. That we can't meet God's righteous requirements. So it's fascinating the purpose that Moses' law served. It served perhaps not to make us guilty. Maybe it's better to say it showed or made more obvious that we've been guilty all along. Because we can't live by God's moral demands. Moses' law just put it in a written code, so to speak. But those principles of right and wrong had been there since the creation and the fall into the garden. And so the result of the law's work is all the world becomes guilty. It shines the light of truth and renders a legal verdict in the court of God. Guilty. James 2 and 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. This reminder is there when we argue with ourselves that I'm not that bad because I, I, I get it. I look down the street one way and I look down the, the street the other way and I think, well, I'm not doing all that stuff. I mean, it's pretty bad down there. And, and from your perspective, I could see you looking at yourself and thinking the same way. Well, it's it's... You know, I know I'm not perfect, but it's not like, you know, over there it's kind of a mess. And as we argue with ourselves like that, how long does it go on before we wake up and realize that 
when Jesus told the story of the, uh, of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple, the Pharisee is all of us. Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like those people. I mean, at least I'm not that bad. We may not say it in as openly a haughty way as we read in that story's depiction, but we're still saying the same thing. And I think maybe the best way to illustrate this concept is an illustration I heard a friend use I want to share with you now. It's kind of like a chain. Think of obeying God's laws like a chain. And if you're hanging from that chain for dear life and you hanging on to that chain and that chain remaining intact, that your life depends on all of that, then you got to hold on and it's got to stay together. One sin, one link breaks the chain. And once the chain is severed and I'm plunging to my doom, imagine me saying, but these other links are so great. (laughs) I mean, I'm not that bad. That old boy over there that's fallen, his chain's completely in pieces, right? But we're both still falling to our death. Because we can't save ourselves. We can't be perfect. Somewhere along the way we'll err. And honestly, who among us would say, well, I'd have her lick, but there was that one time I did one thing wrong. We know better, don't we? James takes it to the extreme that we never really achieve and says, even if you only ever do one thing wrong, your chain's still broken and you're still plummeting to a certain doom. That's our guilt. In Job, Job argued back and forth with his buddies about whether or not he was guilty and the tragedies that that had come upon him at Satan's hand were there because of any guilt he had before God. And he said, be it indeed that that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. In the context of this statement, it's obvious there's kind of a legal debate going on and In a left-handed way, I think Job's probably trying to say, you guys haven't proven that I'm guilty of the things you accuse me of. And they hadn't because he wasn't guilty. But he said, whatever guilt I have, it's with myself. I'm taking responsibility for it. That's how I read that phrase. That Job embraces his accountability, and that's what we've got to do. It's not that just something happened. It's not just that there was a mistake. It's I did. I have to accept that accountability. Boy, that's hard. You know, if I, if I didn't get all the dishes washed, I'd way rather tell my wife some of those didn't get washed than to say, I didn't wash all those dishes. It's just easier. It just feels a little bit less bad. I'm not saying she makes me do it. I'm just telling you, I'd rather say it one way than the other. But for our heart's sake, we need to embrace the accountability. In Proverbs 9 and 12, if thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. God's system of justice is really simple. He's going to hold each person responsible for what they did. 
Well, but they tempted, they, they made me, they put the pressure on me, they did this and they did that, and you know what? They'll answer for what they did. But if I made a choice and did a thing, then I answer for that. And I'll bear it. And if we persist in that guilt, we can do so to the point that our heart becomes hardened to the awareness of our guilt and we become reprobate. Psalms 81, 11, and 12 talks about this happening when he said, My people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up under their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Because they persisted in not listening to God, God described them as being in a status wherein he had given them up, meaning they had become reprobate. By virtues of the spiritual laws that come at the hand of God, when we resist him long enough, it's just like getting a callus on your hand from excess labor. You get to the point where you don't feel the strike of pain against the skin. It takes a lot more to prick your conscience. Before long, the feeling of guilt is gone and you're no longer able to blush. Romans 1 describes this process. In verse 24 and 28, he said, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. People want to forget God. We've talked about that this week already. Denying the existence of God and all the things that go hand in hand. Why? Because we don't want to face our guilt. And in that exercise, the mind becomes reprobate. The heart becomes calloused. And all guilt is forgotten. The soul plunges to its ruin. Do not sit there outside of Christ until the gospel no longer pricks your heart. Don't do that. Don't sit there in the repeated exercise of sin until it destroys you from the inside out. There is hope of relief. Look, I know the front end of this that we've talked about so far, the front end of this study. I know this is dark and this is sad. And, you know, people, it, we, we don't we won't talk about the sunshine and the rainbows. I do too. But the good news of the gospel has its meaning rooted in the bad news that I need it. And so we put that bad news before our hearts this evening to ready our minds for the good news. Just like he did in Romans 6 and 23. The wages of sin is death. There's the bad news that I'm lost. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the sweet taste. The refreshing cold drink in a dry and thirsty land. The wonderful news that God inexplicably loves you. And unexplainably loves me. Not because of me, not because of you, but in spite of us, he still loves us and he looks at us in all of our wretchedness, in all of the ugliness that he sees us outside of Christ as we read earlier in Psalms 53 and he looks at us and he says, you know, I still love him. 
And they're worth saving. They're worth it so much, I'll even give my own son to get it done. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ bore our guilt. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sometime when you have time, go ahead and get two Bibles. I bet you've got more than two. And open one of them to Psalms 53. And read how God sees humankind outside of Christ. And with one Bible open to that page, open the other one to Isaiah 53. And read what Jesus bore. In Isaiah 53, Jesus bore what God said in Psalms 53. All that about how lost we are and how God sees us and how hopeless and ugly it seems, how the pit of the stomach turns at the thought of it, every bit of that Jesus bore, Jesus carried. That burden in Psalms 38 that David said, Lord, I can't carry it. Jesus said, I can and I will. And he did. When he went to Calvary, he carried more than his cross up that hill. He carried what David couldn't. He carried the ugliness of the dark hour of lust when David ruined so many lives with his adultery. He carried the dark words, the dark deeds, the dark thoughts that you and I have all wallowed in in our weakness moments. Jesus carried it when he went up the hill and when they nailed him to the cross. And in doing that, he carried our iniquities and let the hand of God's justice shake the hand of God's love and say, I'll be the just God that punishes sin, but I'll be the loving God that saves his creation. And in one act, he loved us and hated sin. And made it so that we could be saved. Jesus bore the iniquity of us all. That news is so much sweeter against the backdrop of the sadness of Psalms 53. So we come to that gift and we receive that gift with our obedience. Hebrews 5 and verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. This gift of salvation that Christ authored, think authorized, think wrote, think record, think made, think enabled. What Jesus did at Calvary is a gift that goes to those that obey him. And in our obedience, we must humbly repent. We must renounce our sin and seek his will. Isaiah 55 and 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
abundantly pardon. I don't get it. I don't get it. But the Bible assures us he loves mercy. Do you really love forgiving? Well, once we've grown and relationships improve, there are times I think that yes, we do. But are there times that you stare forgiveness in the face and you think, you know, I've got to do this, but I really don't want to. I can't tell you how many times I've told my wife. And she said, honey, I know I feel the same way. And I can't tell you the time she's wept with me and I said, I know, dear, I don't want to either. We've got to do this. And in that struggle, we're fighting tooth and nail, hair, teeth, and eyeball, just doing everything we can to enter onto the edge of doing what God just loves to do. Forgive. I don't get it, but I believe it. I trust his promise to do it. I believe him when he said, I'll abundantly pardon. Psalms 34 and 18 says, The Lord is nigh to them that are of a broken heart and save us such as be of a contrite spirit. So the next time we weep over Psalms 53, when you're feeling broken and contrite and humble and you're ready to find whatever you can find from the hand of God to help you come back closer to him, understand that's when God is getting close to you. Those feelings of guilt and those feelings of unworthiness that the world wants to chase away and say, oh no, you're not that bad, you're enough. The world is trying to chase away, Satan is trying to chase away the very fuel we need that would bring us closer to God and that's a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Don't talk yourself out of the state of mind that God needs to bring you to to bring you back to him. And then be baptized into Christ. See that repentance followed by being baptized into Christ. In Acts 2 and 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The scriptures tell us on that one occasion, 3,000 people decided to do that very thing. You think God didn't love that moment because he loves mercy. You think Jesus didn't love that moment when he could forgive the people that crucified him? That's what he prayed for on the cross. Father, forgive them. He was praying that this moment would happen. I wonder if at God's throne he's ever yearned for you. To be able to forgive you. I bet that's exactly how he feels. Once you're in Christ. Once you become a child of God. You're not going to always get it right. And you're going to revisit sometimes those moments of guilt. And the scriptures don't leave us without instruction. James 5 and 16. Confess your faults. One to another and pray. One for another that you may be healed. 
The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You seek the company, the comfort, the consolation, and the instruction of those who will hear your confessions and keep the matter to themselves as the scriptures tell us to do and pray to God with you and pray to God for you. And that prayer avails much. Trust God's promise that he loves to forgive, that he delights in mercy. It's a mixed picture in tonight's study, a mixed picture of a brokenness in the realization of our sin and an indescribable joy at the salvation God brings through Jesus Christ. This mixture of a picture we find painted in Romans 5 and verse 8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Tonight, the word of God has confronted you and I with our sin and our guilt. If you're inside Christ tonight, be thankful and be faithful. And if you falter, confess and pray. Be humble and turn to him. He loves to. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.